Welcome to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White, and we're your hosts on The People. The People features the voices and ideas of the people that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3. The People features art, literature, talk, cultural criticism, visual culture, intelligent witticisms, and so much more, like a broken record magically repaired. In Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM, or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press, and you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to look at images of and to find out more about our guest's work as we're talking about it here on The People. The music you heard at the top of the show was Radio Ear, Radio Pravda, or Radio Truth, by Ziga Vertov from 1925. 
Our guests today on The People are Boris Draljuk and Andrew Falkowski. Boris Draljuk holds a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures from UCLA. He is the translator of Leo Tolstoy's How Much Land Does a Man Need from Calypso Editions 2010. He's co-translator of Polina Barskova's The Zoo in Winter, selected poems from Melville House 2011. And he's the author of the monograph Western Crime Fiction Goes East, The Russian Pinkerton Craze, 1907-1934, from Brill Press, 2012. He's also the co-editor with Robert Chandler and Irina Mashinsky of the forthcoming anthology of Russian poetry from Pushkin to Brodsky from Penguin Classics in 2015. He's received first prize in the 2011 Compass Translation Award competition and with Irina Mashinsky, first prize in the 2012 Joseph Brodsky Stephen Spender Translation Prize competition. Um, welcome to the people, Boris Draljuk. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank we're you. very excited to have you. Um, so we have a book coming out very soon called A Slap in the Face, Four Russian Futurist Manifestos. I'm super excited about this project. Um, they contain The book contains four uh, Russian Futurist Manifestos, uh, A Slap in the Face of Public Taste from 1912, The Manifesto from A Trap for Judges 2 from 1913, and Go to Hell from 1914, and A Drop of Tar from 1915. Um, it's a great collection of manifestos. Can you tell Thank us you. just a little bit about um, these, this particular group of writers sure. and the general sense of, give us a general sense of these manifestos? Sure, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> this group of writers uh, uh, call themselves a number of things. They, they changed the, the title of their group time and time again every year. It was a different, different grouping. Um, the core of the group... Uh, were the brothers Burluk, uh, David Burluk and Nikolai Burluk, uh, the Burluks. Um, they were both artists and poets, uh, known more as artists than poets. Vladimir um, Chlebnikov, uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky, and uh, a number of uh, other important figures in uh, 20th century, early 20th century Russian poetry. Um, so I will talk a little bit more about other figures uh, as we move on in the interview. Uh, they are usually called the Russian futurists. When people speak of the Russian futurists, this is the group they have in mind. Uh, but they themselves re often rebelled against the title futurism. Khlebnikov, uh, for instance, uh, created a, uh, uh, his own version of the term futurism based on Russian roots. Uh, he called the group uh, the Buditlani. Uh, which are the residents of the future tense of the verb to be. Uh, so the residents of the to be, uh, whatever is to come. Um, they uh, were originally called the Hillaeans, and that's uh, uh, the title that many scholars use to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, refer to the group throughout its history, the Hillaeans. They later called themselves the Cubo-Futurists, any number of things, and uh, but the, the, so and the other part of the question was tell, tell us a little bit about these manifestos. Well, the manifestos themselves uh, were, as you know, a new genre uh, in the early 20th century, uh, and uh, these little booklets that the futurists put out were meant to be exceedingly provocative. Uh, and you can tell by the title of the manifesto that lends its name to the collection, "A Slap in the Face of Public Taste." Um, the, the manifestos have two purposes. One is to outline a general program for a new poetics, and the other one is to shock, 
shock, specifically the public, that means the bourgeoisie. Um, so, so sometimes the mission of outlining a new, poeti a new poetics falls by the wayside, and all you're left with is a bunch of slaps in the face, a kind of frenetic slapstick slapping of the face. Uh, and those are the manifestos that I find to be most fun anyway. So. So could you tell us about the relationship between the Hellenes and other futurist groups in Europe? Because I know when I read the manifestos, I was really surprised that they, they didn't adhere to ideas I had about futurism mm -hmm. and about futurist groups. Mm -hmm. Then, in fact, they were the exact opposite. So could you, could you speak to that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, one thing that uh, distinguishes the Russian futurists from the Italian futurists uh, who were futurists proper, let's say, uh, and especially Marinetti and his group, uh, is that uh, uh, while Marinetti eventually gravitated toward uh, uh, fascism, the Russian futurists or the Hellenes and most of the other futurist groups gravitated toward the other extreme politically. Uh, they became uh, very much left-leaning uh, and were involved with, with uh, uh, liberal causes from the start. Uh, part of that is, is uh, just a function of the way a Russian society was structured at the time. If you wanted to be... Uh, a uh, forward-thinking artist, you had to align yourself with a liberal cause. Liberals were uh, dominant in terms of, in terms of uh, uh, cultural prestige, uh, especially among artists and among uh, well, the thinking people. Uh, the regime was uh, uh, perceived as more and more senile, more and more uh, uh, not just conservative but moribund. And so to, uh, to be a right-winger in a Tsarist society doesn't mean exactly the same thing as being a right-winger in Italy uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So that, that explains part of it. Um, and uh, there are many differences uh, in terms of their approach to... Uh, in, in terms of where they draw their inspiration. So Marinetti did come to Russia in 1914 to meet these so-called futurists, uh, and uh, it was not a successful meeting. It was not, this is not an event that was blessed by the gods. Uh, he uh, was sorely surprised to find these people not at all grateful for his invention <laughs> of futurism, uh, unwilling to admit that they were just imitating Marinetti. Um, uh, one of the more intelligent members of the group, the, probably the most erudite member of the group, uh, uh, Benedict Lifschitz, uh, challenged Marinetti time and time again, at least on two occasions, uh, in, for long debates about where uh, Russian futurists have taken uh, futurism far beyond what Marinetti envisioned, that Marinetti was betraying his own program, uh, that he destroyed punctuation only to create a new punctuation, whereas the Russian futurists destroyed punctuation for good and liberated the word. So there were, there were a lot of debates uh, uh, about that. At, at the end, Marinetti simply fell back on uh, racial epithets, and you said that Russians are lazy and uh, uh, they're, you know, big bears and uh, lumbering through futurism. Um, and that's Marinetti's way. Uh, <laughs> whereas whereas uh, the, the Russians tried to um, uh, stay away from this kind of ethnic, uh, ethnic uh, uh, debate. Although they were, very much, uh, they were very much interested in Slavic culture and many of them became uh, deeply, deeply rooted in, in Slavic culture and a kind of a, a mystical pan-Slavism. So, huh. mm -hmm. And... Can you tell us a little bit about um, your translation, sure. your particular translation of these manifestos, and a little bit even about the history of 
the translations of these manifestos. Sure. Like, why, you know, yeah. why do we need your translation? Sure. Right? Well, uh, my feeling about uh, these manifestos is that if their, uh, at, at least half of their intent, if not their primary intent, is to shock, then they ought to be expressed in translation in a language that shocks or in a language that surprises, somehow reflects the innovations of the originals, the provocative innovations of the originals. Uh, and uh, not surprisingly, most of the people who had been interested before in translating these manifestos were academics and uh, f translated these things for academic purposes uh, to explain in a relatively dry matter uh, manner what these manifestos say on a you know uh, flat semantic level what they are trying to communicate but it's just as important to try to relay how they are trying to communicate this and so in my translation I try to recreate some of that effect that that freshness that uh, these things represented in uh, Russian poetry excellent so. On the people, we always ask our guests to bring in some audio relevant to their work. And Boris, you brought in some audio. Do you want to talk about it ahead of time or afterwards? Or We can talk about it afterwards, I think. Okay, yeah. well, let's play it. Okay. <laughs> О, засмейтесь усмеяльно, О, рассмешись над смеяльных смех усмеяльных смехачей, О, не смейся рассмеяльно смех над смеяльных смеячей, Смеева, смеева, усмей, а смей, смешите, смешите, смеючите, смеючите, О, рассмейтесь смехачи. Dir, bull, shil, ubeshur, skum, v, se, bu, r, l, z. Ka, klinok. Ka, klinok. Kak, kirka. Kolko. Kolet. Kamken. Tak, kukushki. Крик, куку, ковка, галка, ковка, палка, ка, ке, ки, ко. Каменский, Василий. So those sound amazing, but for those of us who don't speak Russian, can you explain what's going on? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the first uh, poem that we heard recited is called Incantation by Laughter in translation. Uh, and uh, it's written by Velimir Khlebnikov. Uh, when I said a little bit earlier that uh, the Russian futurists, or at least uh, some of the Russian futurists, were uh, deeply, deeply interested in Slavic culture, uh, Khlebnikov is the primary example of this kind of of this kind of uh, trajectory in Russian futurism. The incantation by laughter, uh, the title itself uh, points to something that's, uh, that, may be, that may seem contradictory in Russian futurism. Uh, it's, it's a spell. It's a laughing spell. It's a primitive, uh, ancient form uh, that Hlebnikov is adapting for a futurist work. Uh, and what is uh, the content of this poem that was um, written in 1908-1909? Uh, the content of the poem is uh, he's taking the root, the Slavic root of the word laughter, smiech, 
and he's transforming this root into every possible part of speech. Noun, adjective, uh, imperative form of the verb, uh, third person form of the verb, uh, singular, plural, everything he can possibly do with this, this smiach. And uh, so how can we interpret this poem? Well, I, there are any number of things you can lay onto it. Uh, you can say that he is throwing laughter back at the audience that is laughing at him and his work. He's telling them, he's um, and not just telling them, but charming them into laughing in, in a kind of hysterical fit rather than the kind of laughter where he's taking the power from them, essentially. He's, and being laughed yeah, at yeah. was... Correct me if I'm wrong. Being laughed at was a big part of their performance. Oh, absolutely, was it not? absolutely. Part of uh, the act of apatang le bourgeois, right, is to elicit that kind of laughter, elicit that kind of response. You think I'm ridiculous because I paint my face and because I wear a yellow blouse? Is that is that what you think? Yeah. You're ridiculous. Yeah, you're just a step away from this. I'm just bearing this device of the bourgeois culture. Uh, and so, yes, absolutely. But, you know, Hlebnikov was a very young man when he wrote this uh, little chant. You can also see almost a, a kind of uh, uh, an attempt to deal with the anxiety of, of a young man's anxiety of not being taken seriously. So that's possi- possible readings of the poem. And, and bef- yeah. before we move on to the other two, this, yeah. it, I feel like it's important to know that this is read by... It's incredibly important to know that this is read by Roman Jakobson, who not only uh, was a leading expert in Hlebnikov's poetry, but knew these people, knew these people very well, uh, wrote some of the most important early criticism on the futurists. As a matter of fact, Roman Jakobson's, uh, I, I do believe that his first publication was a page in an album of futurist verse uh, uh, under a pseudonym. Hmm. They were Zaum poems, poems like the first and second poem that we just heard, actually poems like all three of these. Uh, so Jakobson cut his teeth on futurist poetry. And here he is in the 1950s living in safety in America, reciting these things as he heard these people recite them. Uh, It's a remarkable continuity. Uh, Jakobsen writes very movingly about his career as a Russian futurist in a a small book that that he wrote later in life. Uh, And uh, uh, it was really a training ground, not just for this movement, it was a training ground not just for people who stuck with futurism, as a mode of expression, but for a whole uh, plethora of Russian poets and Russian scholars who went beyond futurism and took many, many different directions in their careers. But this was a vital training ground for, for a, a huge chunk of, of, uh, of, that, of that population. And then the other two poems, yes, you can... Sure, absolutely. Yeah. The, the second poem is uh, probably the most notorious example of Zaum poetics, mm-hmm. which has uh, uh, been translated brilliantly by Paul Schmidt as beyond sense, mm-hmm. right? It's literally behind the mind poetry, uh, which breaks, uh, there, I won't go too deeply into the theory, but it breaks words away from uh, the baggage of semantics, uh, from the baggage of, of uh, everything that we've stuck to them uh, through centuries of use. It liberates the mass of the word. Uh, it's the word as such, as one of the manifestos, uh, one of the manifestos has it. The poet is uh, Alexei Krychonek. Uh, he rec- he uh, presented originally this poem uh, with a headnote that read three poems uh, in a language entirely unlike any other 
does not correspond to any other language. Its sounds and words do not correspond to any other language, right? <laughs> that, that kind of thing. And so he, he wanted to make sure that you understood the innovation here. Not only does he uh, use um, uh, words that have no meaning, he uses combinations of letters that cannot possibly exist in Russian orthography. He breaks every boundary imaginable uh, without going entirely into the graphic realm. Uh, and he's able to recite the poem. That's not him reciting, but he was able to recite the poem. Um, although it should technically not be recitable because those letters don't go together. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's the extreme of Zaum. Yeah. The third poem is by a fellow named Kaminsky, uh, who was uh, another member of, of uh, this group of Russian futurists. He was not necessarily the most uh, uh, innovative of the poets, but he was uh, truly a very, very profoundly talented guy and a great pilot. Uh, so that, too, he had going for him. Um, he, uh, he, uh, his great innovation in terms of the mise-en-page, in terms of graphic poetry, was the creation of uh, what he called... Uh, pharaoh concrete poems, poems that, are, uh, that look like a cityscape uh, as you're flying over it at night or during the day uh, in an airplane. That it, sounds futurist it, to me. Yeah, it's very, very much futurist. It's futurist uh, as we understand it, exactly. Right. And, uh, uh, but his work, too, has elements of primitivism that are very surprising, romanticism, things that, that don't quite go hand in hand with what we think of as futurism. Uh, and uh, uh, my uh, friend David Shook and I are translating some of his poems, uh, not the Pharaoh Concrete things quite yet, but a, a, a few of his more standard poems, which are still graphically innovative. Uh, if, if, uh, you, and you yeah. brought some, I brought some things yes. to read. Uh, and you're going to do the, uh, the Russian and also the English absolutely, for us? Absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. So let me read to you, we'll see how much time we have, but I'll read to you a poem called Vizov, uh, which means challenge, a kind of challenge that you issue when you want to fight somebody to the death. So, вызов. Какофонию души, моторов симфонию. Это я, это я, футурист, песнебоец и пилот-авиатор Василий Каменский. Эластичным пропеллером винтил облака, кинув там за визит дряблой смерти кокотки из жалости шитая танговая манто. That's the Russian poem. Uh, there's a footnote. I'll explain the footnote when I read the translation. Uh, David and I translated this poem, which is called Challenge, as glove slap. And first of all, it's, it's a, a much, much richer word, and it'll be evident why we're using attire in the title. Cacophony of the soul, motors symphony. It is I, it is I, futurist, song warrior, and pilot aviator, Vasily Kaminsky. I screwed into the clouds with an elastic propeller, where I threw to death the shabby coquette, as thanks for the visit, a tango frock, sewn from pity, and stockings with pantaloons. Nice. There is a footnote, the footnote is next to the line, pilot aviator, and it reads, Diploma number 67 of the Imperial All-Russian Aero Club, issued 9th November 1911, documenting the fact that he is, in fact, a pilot. Yeah. He's not just making claims. Yeah. Did you so, have uh, something else to read? Sure, I can, yeah. I can read another, another poem. I'll read the first little section of 
a poem called Stranik Vasili. Я страны страник странных стран. Складу стихи в мешок крупчаточный, взвалю на горб и с костылем пойду на богомолье, зайду и к вам, в имение. Выпить кофе, выкурить сигару, на чае пьемся, покатаемся на автомобиле, заедем на аэродром, на аэроплане я, опытный пилот. Хотите, я возьму вас леди пассажиркой, полетим над городом вечерним ровно в шесть часов, and it goes on and on. I'll read you how this sounds in uh, English. It's called Stranger Vasily. I'm a strange stranger of strange lands. I'll stick poems in a flower sack, toss it over my hunchback, go on a pilgrimage with my crutch. I'll even stop by your estate to drink coffee, smoke a cigar, wheel tea fill up, take a spin in an automobile, Ride to the aerodrome on an airplane. I am an experienced pilot. Shall I take you, lady, as a passenger? We'll fly over the evening city at six exactly. Well, I'm glad they're not fascists like I thought, because I love those. <laughs> Great. I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> you, you notice the, the, the radical egocentrism of these poems, Of right? course. Yeah. The, the last I am a pilot. I am a and pilot. Also, I'll let I you am know. A, pilot. Right. a futurist song warrior and a pilot, <laughs> mind you. And don't you forget. Um, but this, this was a, another strand in futurism, ego-futurism, ego-futurism. Uh, it was a different group, but for a little while there, the cubo-futurists and the ego-futurists merged into one group, and one of the manifestos reflects that merger. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about this, because I'd, I'd love to hear about the stagecraft sure. of, of, of these writers, which was intense. Sure, absolutely. And amazing. Trotsky had something to say about that. Quite a lot. Did he not? Um, but we should encourage people to to read. There's a so there's an interview that Saul Alpert Abrams did with you mm-hmm. about these tra- these uh, translations of the manifestos, and I believe it's going to go up on World Literature Today very soon, and we'll link to it at Insert Blanc Press as well. Great. Um, it's a great interview, and anyone listening should check it out. It's some great information, um, and. This has, you know, been great to have you. Thank you. It's been Absolutely. great being here. And I can't tell you how excited I am, excited I am to get this book out, A Slap in the Face. It's going to be a, uh, just a wonderful thing. Thank it's, you very much. Yeah, it's very exciting. I'm very excited to, to be featured here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah Boris Jalyuk, thanks, thanks for being on The People. Thank you. Thank you.
Welcome back to The People on Keqiang, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. And if you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, you can listen to The People by setting your dial to 1630 AM, or you can listen to the live stream at keqiangradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press, and you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more about our show. Our guest is Andrew Fokowski. He's an artist and an educator. He got his BA from UC Santa Cruz, his MA from University of Wisconsin-Madison, his MFA from California Institute of the Arts in 2003, and he teaches at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and Northwestern University. And he is a part of the Artist Pension Trust in New York. He also has a show up right now at Roseman Felsen Gallery in Santa Monica called On to the Next One, and it runs June 8th through July 6th. Andrew Falkowski, welcome to the people. Thanks for that. Thanks very much. Yeah. yeah. So the show that you have up at Roseman Felsen right now, uh, do you want to t- tell us about it? Sure, sure, sure. So um, it, I think there's about, uh, I'm sort of dropping the amount. I think there's 15 pieces that are around you know, two and a half by three feet, two and a half by four. And some of them are on aluminum and some are uh, framed plexiglass, uh, framed under plexiglass, but they're um, paintings on paper. And so the aesthetic that's sort of consistent with them both are the relatively hard edge, they're clean, they're really bright, saturated colors. Um, but then some are sort of like woven together. Some of them are super duper flat. And um, the ones that all have, some of them, most, by and large, most of them have, are framed. And I sort of looked at, particularly the ones in papers, that it's all of a piece. Like the, the frame is a part of it in the way that some of them have like a floating frame, just a couple in there that do. Um, and so the objectness of that seemed to be kind of important. But there's a range of surfaces and there's a range of different approaches, but the aesthetic is relatively consistent with the things that I've been interested in for, for a while. But by and large, it's hard edge, clean, colorful abstractions. And maybe tell us about the text and where it comes from and how you're manipulating it in the pieces. Sure. So when I first started showing with Rosemond, I had done a lot of paintings that looked like uh, ransom notes. And I'd done that for a couple years, and then I basically sort of like ran out of gas. I couldn't figure out how to sort of keep making them. Um, but it was, a, it was a collage aesthetic that I was really interested in. And when I started doing this, um, I sort of wanted to figure out a way to play with that language again. I, like, I adore text paintings. That's one of my favorite things. And um, the th- what I had always sort of done was use things that related to, like, whether, whatever. I mean, it was, like, stuff that I was reading or it's like, pop songs. So there's a couple of texts. The ones in this show, at least, were um, just pop songs, songs that I listened to a lot, um, some super popular, some of them a little bit less so. And, um, and, and so, I mean, it would be great if we even just talk about the one painting in particular, sure. the Feel Like It Only Goes Backwards right. piece that's in the, in the show. I mean, if you can tell us about that sure. specifically. Right. So um, it's, it's one of the ones that's on paper and it's woven together. So it's actually, you wind up making the painting twice, cutting it up and sort of like weaving it back in together. But it's nice because it gives the text like a glitching quality. So it's sort of, it's a little bit fractal. Um, but the text is just from that Tame Paula song that's like everywhere, right? And it's something that I just listened to, but it felt like um, it was a way back into certain uh, languages of painting that I kind of just like gave up on or sort of like didn't want to do for a while, but um, that I just love. Like I loved making those things. I just couldn't figure out how to do it again. Um, so the, the text says like it always goes backwards, although you can sort of see a little bit of the feels in the top, but the pattern in the background is like a series of rings. 
and that was a painting. It was a reference to a painting that I'd made like 12 years ago, and um, related to like these paintings about bende dots that I was really into, and some some like a tangential relationship to mediation. But um, even the rings sort of like get a little bit more fractal. And you know, I'm just thinking about it now, but it's like it's totally related to this other artist that I like adores, uh, Sarah Morris's paintings. Like she has these. You know, she did all these text paintings in the early 90s, but then she's making these other ones that look like the facades of buildings of, in New York. And then she's been doing these ring paintings that I just sort of love. Um, and I, it just occurred to me now that that's like this cross-reference. <laughs> and can, can you tell us more about the Bende dots? Which, I mean, here, there, you've taken them another step where right. they're rings in right. this piece, but... If yeah, explain what they are. Like, yeah. Right. right, so like the Bende dots that I'm specifically re referring to, it's... I guess it was how they made halftones for comic books and what, newspapers and Correct. things like yeah. that and, and like yellow pages, like who uses any of that. But yeah. the reason that I got into that stuff in the first place is because um, I really liked Roy Lichtenstein's paintings. And it was just, a, and he was like an art history lesson for someone like me. So like I, I got into painting because I did graphics for skateboards. So it was like this, it was like, it was a gateway drug basically. and. Um, I wanted to get down to like what is the core of what he made that I was really interested in. And um, it was his relationship to like history, but also sort of like pop culture dissemination, right? And so the Bende Dots totally lent themselves to that. So I just wanted to sort of get all the other sort of cultural references out of it and just sort of focus in on the pattern painting, right? Um, and then my sort of my, if I had any contribution to it at all, it would be like just adding like the rings to it, just as a way to sort of getting it a little bit farther away from to like just pop references. Um, but the dots are big, right? So like his would look like, like a tone, like a half tone, whereas mine were big enough so they felt like like a node or something like that, you know? It's almost like the game of Go, you know? Like, how do you create influence with bits? And um, that's how I did it. And then, so, it it looks like a screen or a field, but it was done sort of just in sections. It's just, when it's super-duper clean, it looks like it's a really um, specific, super tight pattern, but it was done a little bit more haphazardly. So it gives you a little bit of both, you know? And all of the work on this show is very clean. It has this very flat, uh, just very clean aesthetic, mm -hmm. and um, you you've said that it's your studio is an absolute like, train wreck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I find that really interesting. Can you talk about tell tell us a little bit about that process and yeah, how, I don't, how do I these don't clean know. things come out of your I messy don't know. studio? No. Yeah, <laughs> like it it, sh it should be like some like German lab, right? But it's like it's totally not. And it got to the point once where. It got so bad that actually chipmunks had moved in and I didn't notice. <laughs> and they were, they were in there amongst the filth and my wife was like, what are you doing in here? Like, this is a crazy person, right? It's like hoarder. Um, and it, it's, it's, Glenn Brown talks about that. Like his paintings are super flat and it's, it's, he's, he says like, you get all the dirt out of the painting, you know? So I don't know if it's that or if it's just sort of, um, all the paintings look really clean and really specific and as if they're sort of done um, like, designed and, and just sort of produced without, um, without any angst or anything like that. And I'm sort of trying to figure them out as I go along. So it's a series of failures, right? I just don't clean them up until the end. Right. And so that's why it winds up coming out. So the studio is horrifying, but then you'll have like this one pristine square thing on the wall. And um, that is just some weird idiosyncrasy. I, I wish I had a better answer for well, that. Well, speaking of angst, um, and the Ben Day dots and the rings and their transformation in your work from dots to rings. Let's talk about the germs. Mm -hmm. um, where, 
aside from the aesthetic connection between the Bende dots and your rings and the germ circle, which right. I'm sure everyone right, right, knows right. about, yeah. um, you want to talk about that and what the germs have to do with your work? Right. So, like, what I was thinking about, well, the thing, I mean, a lot of the paintings that I was really into, uh, particularly, like, the, the paintings that related to, um, like, ransom notes and all that kind of stuff, it, it's... It's, it's, like, it's like a signifier of punk rock, but it's really a signifier of that guy, Jamie Reed, who did all the Sex Pistols stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the thing that I, sort of blows my mind about the germs is that they were so, uh, so raw, but their aesthetic of their logo was so clean. There's like this really weird discrepancy in that. So for me, it was another cross-reference between a kind of aesthetic that implied something that was actually really different than the actuality of how they made their, made their music, right? So... Um, the way that the grids are is like the black and white grid that's sort of woven together remains consistent. Whereas then the ring, the actual circle in there, um, keeps breaking in lots of different ways, endless permutations. And it's actually not something that I would know ahead of time, right? So you make two different versions that have different, like, different, the rings are sort of floating around in there. So the whole thing's sort of breaking apart. So it's not something you can sort of uh, compose from the get-go. But the thing that's nice about that too is it allows me to have a series of digressions so that I can keep inventing for myself, right? Um, one thing with this kind of aesthetic is that, again, it can look so staid, right? It can look so, like, like um, almost conservative, right? So you sort of have to figure out a way to amp it up or sort of create loopholes or gaps or different ways where it can sort of devolve in, in aesthetic ways that can sort of produce new meaning or new content or new possibilities. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was trying to do with it. And that's, for me, just, that's what punk rock always did, right? Um, just gave me new options. Can you also, because um, we're saying these are paintings, but right. I think like a little bit more information about like how you're actually making these. Sure. I mean, I'd be interested. I mean, I don't know if you're masking, you yeah. know, just masking stuff off. And I mean, it's... Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's all sign painter shop stuff, right? So um, it goes back to the skateboarding, right? This screen printing is how I learned to paint. And so... Um, the one, let's say the ones on paper would be like gesso paper, right? And then they, they, you, have these, you can get these big rolls of um, basically tape paper, and you put it on there, and then you sort of exacto it out, right? So they're actually, even though they look printed or screen printed, they're all um, hard-edged, uh, airbrushed paintings, right? So I didn't want necessarily to make them, like, make a series. Like, I didn't have an idea about mediation or anything like that, just because screen printing is still, like, a a finite series with digital information. Everything is endless, endless mm -hmm. versions. Um, but I always liked that aesthetic, that sort of clean, um, like that there was no one there. And I liked, I liked things that you looked at first and then you sort of tried to figure out how they, how they were made. And um, that sense of sort of being totally present and totally absent was something that I liked in just, just pop media aesthetics. Yeah. You know, that's just the stuff I was into. Well, let's, you know what, you brought some audio. Yep. Let's listen to that. Do you want to tell us what, what it is? Or? Yeah, sure. It's just the outtakes of a Beach Boys uh, snippet from Smile. Bum. You're right. That's close. What the hell? He's short and groovy and dapper in there. It's almost like a Brillo pad. Just hanging in there, groovy. Oh, I know what it is. It's a Mr. Moto. It's a, it's a karate thing. <laughs> Let's go. Come on, Here man. One. Two. Three. Four. 
Maybe the first bong isn't. It's just gotta be the first bong. Right okay, yeah. but shit, if there's a okay. big thing about having all of us do that bong together, because it I know comes together. Yeah. You're right. Really okay. Very positive bong. So maybe it's I'm just trying to look for something that isn't there. Let's try it again. One, two, one, two, three. My children were raised, you know, they suddenly rise. They start slow and on the go. At the healthy, wealthy, and often wise. That second song uh, obviously wasn't the Beach Boys. That was the Melvin's cover of the Germs' Lexicon Devil. And Andrew, do you want to tell us about those two pieces of audio? And sure. Well, you know, the, the Melvin's version is just something like I loved. Like I like how we were just sort of chit-chatting about it. It's, it's just so mean and clean. And it's so um, just messed up. But it's like a fantastic song, right? Um, but also just the idea of lexicon, that was something that I've been thinking about a lot, um, in part because I teach a lot, so lots of students have lots of different needs, so I wound up trying to basically become really literate, or had to become really literate, and that's something you know, that was constantly pushed at CalArts, this idea of being able to understand different languages or idioms, right? And painting in the last 10 years has had that, at least theoretically, sort of on, on tap, 
right? That like anybody can like live in this sort of horizontal dispersed field and make any kind of thing that they want, but at the same time, people aren't sort of taking advantage of it. That you have lots of different pictorial strategies that you can sort of use, and it doesn't have to be like a solo show that looks like a group show, but it's more of an issue of like, how do you give yourself range in an idiom that isn't a series of diminishing returns? Like, and that's what I've been trying to do with the show, is like, how can editorial digressions actually produce new content that is still connected up to what you're into, right? As opposed to being like, this is my subjective thing, and then I make it, and I run out of gas, and then sort of like, it's an endless, boring thing at that point. Um, I've been trying to figure out a way to play with this notion of a lexicon, right? And figure out different avenues so that it's, you know, there's possibilities in it, it's fun. And it would be something that would be open and inviting, as opposed to being didactic, right? And that's, that's sort of what, I, that's what the show's sort of core drive is, you know? So let's jump to a, a specific example again. There's this, the kind of lime green, what you called an ASICS painting. Yeah. And this is more, uh, of, you know, employing the grid and various kind of interlocking grids and right. various kind of color schemes. And there's a lot, we've been talking about dots and all that a right, bunch, right, but right. it's important to note that in the Rosamund Felsen show, yeah, it's like primarily, a lot of grids, right. actually. Yeah. So maybe tell us about this particular painting, uh, yeah. Sure. So, like, I just call it the ASICS painting because I have a friend that we just talk about uh, running shoes and that most running shoes look like better, look, they look better than most paintings that I'm seeing, right? So, I have, a, like, a catalog of JPEGs at home of, like, you know, maybe 600 shoes. And just looking at whoever's designing these shoes is, like, my hero, right? Like, grandmothers who can't walk and then, like, world-class athletes are wearing the most aesthetically pleasing things I've ever seen, right? And so, like, the green came from that and high-saturated colors and just range and contrast in it is the thing that I've sort of been playing with. So um, that one in particular is you have different grids and then you also have, like, literal collage and then sort of pictorial collage, right? And the one thing that I have been um, playing with is this idea. It's, like, the worst thing ever. It's, like, the drop shadow. Like, it's, like, the most hacky graphic design thing you can do in the 80s, but it's, like bring it back because it implies this unskilled sense of depth, right? But then when you play it against the literal, it's just trying to figure out, okay, well, what are different pictorial strategies that you can actually use that have been sort of ghettoized or different ways to sort of invent the possibilities of abstraction, right? And that's, that's kind of what I've been trying to do. So playing flat against depth and Trump versus sort of high modernism. And it's not dialectic. It's just sort of, again, trying to play what those possibilities can be. You know? Well, and this painting is like a couple other in, of others in the show where the background color is extended to the frame. Right. Can you talk about, just tell us a little bit about what that choice, why, why to employ that choice? Right. I mean, what it, what it comes down to is when I was thinking about a lot of paintings, things, the 20th century is all about sort of breaking a boundary, right? And what I have been thinking about a lot, and this is something that people have been talking about in the last 10 years, is that when you have a boundless series of contextless bits of information, right, the internet, what you basically have to do is to find some kind of subjective presence, you have to frame yourself. So I like the idea of that the paintings in themselves being like little sets or referring to each other, right, models of each other, but at the same time they're sort of bounded within a frame so that sort of like highlights that distinction and hi highlights that object. Um, and that was the thing that I was sort of playing with I was, I was, I didn't know how to deal with paper because it's such an ephemeral thing compared to like a strong canvas or a panel. And it was a way of activating that object, right? And at the same time, um, giving it a frame, you know? Mm -hmm. 
um, both literally and sort of like metaphorically. Like a beautiful five-part harmony. I think exactly. that we would be remiss if we did not refer back to the Beach Boys clip. Right. Yeah. Um, They're the best. And yeah. that smile record. Um, and the thing that I really like, the smile, actually Michael Duncan sort of clued me in on that. And there's people um, that I knew at Madison who were really into this, like um, bootlegs of that smile record before it came out in 2004. And it's the snippets of them trying to put it together. So you make something that's incredibly refined and you sort of, you don't think of that thing as having to go through a process of organization. And what I like about hearing them trying to f figure it out is, well, like, one, they seem so wholesome, but they're totally baked, right? And then them goofing around trying to figure this thing out. And then sort of when they finally pull it together, that's the thing where it's sort of like, it's the culmination of all the parts. But I think it's important that you have those digressions and to let us know that is, it is something that is trying to, um, I don't know, ontological, right? Like sure. trying, to, <laughs> trying to form itself, you know, and sort of trying to figure out what it means to form itself. And that's, that's the other thing is this show is. This show is a supposition, right? It's propositions. It's not defined terms. And that's the thing that's been really fun because in the past they, they could get didactic for me. Like I wanted to make something that was defensible for CalArts. And you don't have to do that. No, you right? really don't. You really don't. <laughs> <laughs> and that Beach Boys clip, I mean, that's and I hate to do this, but you look at your paintings, especially the grid one in this show that we just spoke about, and it feels just like the Mike Lo stoned Mike Love right. and Brian Wilson and the other ones. You know, trying to get it together, and you hear them sort of going back and forth and, and being high and hippies, and, right. and it's, you know, it's just these dudes hanging out, and then all of a sudden, boom, like it's together. the most beautiful thing ever, but you can see it sort of falling apart and, and right. reconfiguring itself in, into a whole, right? right? Would you right. say that's fair? Yeah, and you know, with, with this, the kind of aesthetic that I've just seemed to be married to, it, that's, it, it, that's almost always precluded, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost either conceptually or aesthetically, it feels like it's like a John McCracken. It felt like there's no insecurity in that stuff, right? There's this presumption that there's no um, act of becoming, right? right. And that's totally not true. I mean, that's why the studio's probably train wreck half the time. That's probably why I'm always freaked out, you know, trying to make these things. That's why, it, that's why I'm engaged by it, because it's something I simply don't understand. It's just the aesthetic, when it comes out, it looks so um, defined and sort of um, complete, and that's just not the case, and that's sort of not how we live, right? So, like, why make work that, that, that doesn't get closer to sort of how we see and live? And that's, that's one of the things I've been trying to do, too. Yeah, I, in reading up in preparation for this, I ran across a lot of people describing your work, your work and using the word juxtaposition, okay. which maybe is fair, right. but to me, it seems, it's more of like a frustrated indecision <laughs> process. <laughs> How you know you? what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in, both, in both, you know, they're similar. There's some overlap there, but right. it seems more like, and just even hearing you talk or reading, right. uh, reading you reading your writing about teaching. Right. I mean, it really seems more of a, like, less of a, an intentional juxtaposition and more of a, like, is this right or is this right? right. I don't know. Is this right or is this right? right. I'm going to go jump in front of a bus. You know, like, <laughs> like it's just, that, that seems to be the conversation you're having with yourself and your yeah, work. Yeah, constantly. And, you know, in part is, like, you know, most of my network and all my friends were either in Los Angeles or in New York. And when I moved to Chicago, um, you know, you're sort of on your own, you know? And so you're sort of left to your own thoughts, and um, I guess my, yeah, it, it's, I'm more interested in the series of questions and sort of what they can produce as opposed to being like, no, this is what I am. 
And because if, if I really understood that, I probably would have gone into graphic design. You know, mm -hmm. if I could do that, if I could control the sensibility, I would have, 10 years ago, I would have made that leap. And I just, that's not where I'm coming from. Well, I wish we had more time because we have more stuff to talk about, but I think we're about out. Uh, so, Andrew Falkowski, thank you for being on The People. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you. You've been listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. We'd like to thank our guests again, Boris Jaluk and Andrew Falkowski. And you can listen to The People every third Sunday at 3 p.m. If you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. And you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page to find out more about the show. And we're going to take it out with Running Gun by Marty Robbins. All right. I rode out of Kansas City going south to Mexico. I was running, dodging danger, left the girl that I love so. Far behind lay Kansas City and the past that I had earned Twenty notches on my six-gun mark, the lessons I had learned Many times I sold my fast gun for a place to lay my head Till the nights begin to haunt me by the men that I left dead Couldn't stand it any longer with this life that I'd begun So I said goodbye to Jeannie and became a running gun I rode into Amarillo as the sun sank in the west My thoughts in Kansas City and the girl that I love best As I smiled and kissed her gently and then turned away to go Said I'd send for her to meet me when I'd reached old Mexico I had barely left the saddle and my foot just touched the ground When a cold voice from the shadows told me not to turn around Said he knew about my fast gun, knew the price paid by the law Challenged by a bounty hunter, so I turned around to draw I knew someday I'd meet him, for his hand like lightning flashed My own gun stood in leather as his bullet tore its path As my strength was slowly fading, I could see him walk away And I knew that where I lie tonight, he too must lie someday now the crowd is slowly gathering, but my eyes are growing dim And my thoughts return to Jeannie and the home that we had planned Oh, please tell her, won't you, mister, that she's still the only one But a woman's love is wasted when she loves a running gun Running gun Running gun